Hello and welcome to a high stakes episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana, and today we'll be reviewing part one of our tune-up trilogy with 2006's Casino Royale. We'll jump into five-point inspection with Born Again, Is This the End? Poker Pace, To the Right, To the Right, and The Breakup. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. I like it. I like it. Yeah, I, I, I were thinking of calling it Cantina Side Hustle. Uh, uh, let me call you back. Uh, Travis just ran into the shop. Oh, Jesus Christ. Hey, amigo, I need to show you this. Look, look. I've got intel that proves Anakin burned down our shop. Look at this video. Take a look. Holy shit. This is the smoking gun. We got to get this to Detective Mathis. Oh, no, wait. Wait, there's more. I found out that tonight Anakin is going to the casino. The casino? Yeah, he's he's playing in this high stakes poker game. And uh, look, you're the best po poker player I know. So sure, we could just turn him in for the arson, but why not get a little coin off of him first? Uh, po poker? Well, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, doesn't it sound like a cool plot for a Bond movie, though, you know? I guess we'll see when we review Casino Royale. Secret agent James Bond has just earned himself double O status and now must prevent the math prodigy Le Chiffre from funding terrorist organizations across the globe. After 007 foils a suspicious attempt to short airline stocks, Lashif looks for a quick way to score cash before his malicious investors come knocking. Now Bond must stop the CD financier and the most daring mission of them all, a poker tournament using Her Majesty's checkbook? Alrighty Travis, we'll jump into five point inspection here in a second, but before we do, I would love to get your quick diagnostic of 2006's Casino Royale. Um, I remember liking this movie. I still like it. Um, prior to seeing that's Casino good because I thought I thought you were about to say you changed your mind. Like I still like this movie, Travis. <laughs> Not to cut you off, I'm like I still very much like this movie. <laughs> no, I I really like this movie, and I think we have already both tipped our hand. Uh, you know, no pun intended or pun acknowledged, <laughs> not intended. Um, there's one major problem I have with it, which is I don't know why the fuck they're even playing poker in this movie. Okay, so I'm glad you said that because I watched this, as most movies, I wound up, I watched this with my wife. And after we get done watching the whole thing, she missed like the first 15, 20 minutes of it. And she comes, she goes, why do they have to play poker to catch him? I don't get it. And I'm like, okay. It took me entire night to think about it. I woke up the next morning. I was like, okay, I don't know why it came to me overnight, but I, this is like, I don't think there was a throwaway line that we missed, but what I think it's supposed to be is that what they need is Lashif to have no options left. Like he's run out of all of his money. He loses the poker tournament, so he doesn't have the money there. So he's forced to cooperate with government agencies and basically flip on all the tort 
uh, Taurus, the terrorist organizations that he's teamed up with. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That's why they need to beat him at poker first, because at that point, he'll become desperate because he has that throwaway line kind of at the very end where James is like, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to kill me. And then they're going to, all your people are going to kill you. And Lashif's like, oh no, because I can still kill you and then go to your MI6 and they're going to take me in because of everything that I know. So that's ultimately, I don't think it is very clearly stated in the movie that that is what it is. But to me, I'm like, oh, that makes the most sense. It's like once he, if he loses this poker tournament, like he is fucked and he's going to have to cooperate with with world policing agencies which which is fair so you're basically telling me that because to be in this poker game you have to have 10 million dollars and then Mm -hmm. i I guess an optional five million dollars additional to buy yourself back in but so you're telling me that he the has got 15 million dollars left to his name and because of that they can't apprehend it. But to your point, his uh, his terrorist friends are already showing up at the hotel in, what, Montenegro <laughs> to fucking kill him in between poker well, hands. So it feels like he should already be to the point of desperation to to give up. <laughs> I, I Again, I don't know well, why he's willing to take this chance. It, and even to that point, Travis, I feel like it's one of those things like if you just – apprehend him illegally right before the tournament starts so he's not able to enter the tournament you've done succeeded the same thing then you don't actually have to play him all you have to do is stop him from being there when the tournament starts and he can't get into it and all of a sudden like oh well he didn't show up on time we're starting without him and it's like oh well fuck (laughs) yeah just the thought of you know asking a government to spend 15 million dollars to do something like to capture a criminal if i were right you know if i'm ava green if i'm vesper lind and i'm actually working for the treasury i'm just like wait why can't we just arrest him prior to the game but (laughs) yeah if you exclude that i won't say plot hole but kind of illogical choice i i still very much love this movie yes Uh, yeah that was it is always one of those weird things where it's scary to go back and watch movies that I remember loving for this podcast because I'm like, oh my god, if when I put my critical lens on, am I gonna, am I gonna ruin this movie for myself? Like, am I not gonna be able to enjoy this movie anymore? Um, but luckily, that was not the case for that. I'd still very much enjoyed, even for its faults, I still very much enjoy Casino Royale. Yeah, and I mean, we'll get into it in the review, but that's my only major beef. And you know, you you brought up a good point. You kind of explained it. It. You know, you had to stay up all night to to fill that logic gap. But um, I kind of just had to just not focus on that one particular plot point and focus on everything else that there is to love about this movie, which is quite a bit. So we can start with mm-hmm. a, whatever five point you would like. I think Born Again is probably the best place to start with this because, um, you know, as we've stated before, a lot of times we come up with our five point inspection, just share the name with each other, but we don't go into any any real details but i have a feeling that both of us we wanted to talk about the subject where ultimately this is a a hard reboot for the james bond franchise this is supposed to you know they brought in a new bond daniel craig it starts off it's the you know james bond origin story we never needed um that we wound up getting with this movie when he gets his double o status and his very first mission as a double o agent uh but at the end of the day uh it is a very tonal shift in what James Bond had become in the 90s, well, even maybe even before that, but the 90s and even early 2000s, where all of a sudden 
And I think what you're doing with Born Again here, because you came up with the title for this one, is they started seeing what was going on with the Jason Bourne, and all of a sudden it became more grounded in realism. And even like the gadgets, like they don't even introduce Q in this. I don't think Q gets introduced until the next movie. But Q's gadgets, like, all, it's a defibrillator and adrenaline are the gadgets he has in his car uh, in a glove box that opens up with in a silencer in it. Like, there's no jet packs or a quad, like, torpedo boats or, like, weird shit or th- watches with lasers in them or anything like that. It's it's very much ground. Not only saying ground in reality, but it's in 2006. It's before iPhones. Like, they're <laughs> it looks like they're playing on Zoom, like a Zoom version of a phone with how blocky they are, like, smartphones don't even exist in in this this film yet yeah when he uh then when vesper leaves the phone for him and he pulls up the message it was yeah it was so like 2005 era technology but uh yeah like i probably the same is true for most people our age but goldeneye on n64 was a big big moment in video game history for me i i don't know about Mm -hmm. you but i played the shit out of that with my friends but that was kind of the last remnants of of bond being enjoyable to me because by the Mm -hmm. end of the pierce brosnan run i mean like you said there's laser watches there's invisible cars there's all this ridiculous tech and furthermore i don't ever recall pierce brosnan you know, bleeding. I, I don't recall an actual mm. physical fight in any of those Pierce Brosnan movies, including Goldeneye. This movie, I mean, James Bond, you can tell he is raw. He is new. But most importantly, his fights have a physical weight to them. And he you can see the damage on Bond. He, he does not win every fight flawlessly. You know, he, he's cut up. He's changing his shirt. So, yeah, they definitely were inspired by what Jason Bourne was doing, especially the Paul Greengrass second movie, uh, I believe was what mm. born supremacy, born supremacy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was the fault first Paul Greengrass when you can tell that that was top of mind when, when they decided to reboot bond with Daniel Craig. Yeah. And I even thought I the, the best example of seeing how, what that change is, is the, when he's chasing the, the Terrorists need to stop picking people that have very, like, blatant, like, facial deformity. Like, oh, look, it's a bomb maker because his face is all burnt up. Maybe let's not hire the bomb maker who has a burnt up face because he's easy to pick out in a crowd. You know, I'm just thinking, like, maybe that's not the best action. But that whole scene where James Bond is chasing him, it's amazing because the the perp the bomb maker is so elegant and you know i know he's doing parkour parkour and all that but the way he's moving through the construction site and like it there's such a fluid movement to it because you know he's been doing this whereas james bond is a i mean m talks about a blunt instrument like when the guy jumps through like the little window thing james just jumps like runs through the the drywall the sheetrock like everything he does is just brute force even to the point where he shoots the gas canister at the at the um the embassy blowing everything up like it's just he is he's so raw that like he he doesn't have that devonair like you know the the spy that pierce brosnan had at that point like he's he's still transitioning from being kind of you know very physical to actually understanding what it's to be a spy you know to be like austin powers the international man of mystery you know type situation 
Yeah, and I absolutely love that. I, as much as I like Pierce Brosnan as an actor, I, that's why I kind of always found James Bond boring because it feels it, it felt so sanitized and clean and you know I, I'm thinking all the way back to like Roger Moore in Moonraker, like we're going to space, we're shooting lasers. You mm. can tell that that is absolutely what they wanted to separate themselves from, and and like you said, I love the fact that down to. I will say I did enjoy the detecting that that James Bond does in this movie, like, mm -hmm. you know, to to trace the roots to that, that the Bahamas resort and then find the, you know, realize that ellipses is the, the door passcode. I like that he he has a brain. But again, he's explicitly told at times, you know, don't kill anyone. We need people alive. And he literally kind of shits on the carpet in, in front of the world at the embassy <laughs> and fucking kills the target and causes a massive explosion that would surely make world news. Mm -hmm. I think what you're referring to with the investigation period in the Bahamas, all that is the world's longest prologue, but I believe we'll get into that with this is the end uh, or is this the end? Uh, but yeah, just to, to, you know, make sure that we round out born again. It is just very interesting to see how much influence you know movies like the the born series started having and you saw a shift i even thought watching this movie i <laughs> i was playing with my my video settings on my on my tv and all that because i kept thinking i'm like i've i've messed something up because some of the shot like the way that this is shot it i don't remember the colors being this way but it's like then i was I'm like no this is just like this is a very 2006 film like the way that they shot it with some of especially the bahamas how some of it's blown out or even some of the coloring of this. I'm like, it's not wrong. It's just, again, cinema has evolved since this. And that we talk about all the time, 2000, 2000, it was a very specific time in movies. And like, it does, it feels when you, once you re remember that you're like, oh no, this just feels it is a very 2000, 2000s movie. It's not a problem. It's just one of those things you have to understand. If you show me movies from this time period, I can almost pick it out because they do have a certain feel or look to them everything in the bahamas in this movie looks like a commercial for a resort or when he's driving the ford car it looks like mm -hmm. a commercial for ford i i don't know if that's the vibe you got but yeah everything in the bahamas looks like a, a tv commercial of the time yep mm -hmm. so i uh yeah just i you know i don't know if you have anything else to say about born again but i definitely think it was worth just mentioning seeing how they kind of brought, and admittedly, I watched, I think, the first three of the Daniel Craig James Bond movies and then kind of fell off of it because I think, you know, like all things, it's escalation. Like, as you were joking about Pierce Brosnan with invisible cars and lasers, I'm like, oh, so Fast and Furious. I'm like, I forgot the Fast and Furious just took over the ridiculousness of James Bond, especially when they became international spies in the fifth movie. Um, but yeah, I think towards the end, James, you know, even Daniel Craig's run started to to get a little bit more ridiculous with with some of the stories and villains and stuff like that, especially when you introduced Spectre. Like, even I remember Quantum of Solace. It's like, oh, yes, the evil organization, they control water. And you're like, ah, this is, I mean, it's grounded in reality, but at the same time, it's very strange that this is where we're going with this movie. So. Yeah, the villain of Quantum of Solace is basically the Nestle Corporation. <laughs> yeah, she should have just been drowned in chocolate instead of oil, right? <laughs> <laughs> but we digress we digress so i already alluded to it so uh we'll just keep going down uh with 
is this the end so one of my and i don't know if it's a gripe I, I I am going to shit on it a little bit, but it's not a major problem for me. But like, this is one of the only movies I know that has two beginnings and about four endings to it. Like, it rivals Lord of the Rings with how many times the movie ends. And I, I told Caitlin like, once they get to uh, Lashif getting killed, I'm like, get ready because this movie's about to have four different endings. And she goes, what are you talking about? Like, Just get ready because I'm like, you're gonna think this is the end of the movie, and then somehow it's gonna find a little bit more it needs to tell you. I'm like, oh, this is the end of the. Oh no 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 nope. They're gonna continue. They're gonna continue the story. Oh no, this is this has got to be the end of. Oh nope. They're they're gonna give you a little bit a little bit more. So it was just one of those like, I remember the first time I watched this thinking that like, it's a two and a half hour movie, and at a certain point you realize like. The first hour of it is a prologue. It's him getting to the poker tournament, which is the rest of the movie. And I'm like, I enjoyed the first hour of the movie, but honestly, all of that could be established with throwaway lines and exposition. You didn't need an hour to establish all of that. <laughs> that leading up to James Bond getting to the actual movie, which is battling Lashif over poker and figuring all that out. Um, and then, like I said, the first ending is, is when... James survives and is at the hospital. Then you have another ending after that where he decides to retire but doesn't with, with Vesper. And after that, there's a third ending where he hunts down Mr. White, which is the quickest of the endings, which is only about three minutes. And it is the opening to the next movie, Quantum of Solace. But it is was like, how many times is this movie going to end? That is the one thing that I recall before I went back and watched it for this this podcast is I remember the last third of this movie being just weird, just totally, totally different pacing. <laughs> yeah. It like down to the fact that he's like chasing Vesper through. I don't even know where they are. Somewhere Venice. in Italy. Venice. Okay. I think it's Venice. Yeah. Yeah. Cause of the, the, the buildings on the water, mm -hmm. but he's like chasing her in the red dress and so much information gets dropped in like the last 20 minutes of the movie. Like, I'm curious what you think about the fact that it's only revealed what Vesper is doing literally by a throwaway, not a throwaway line, but M just downloads the plot to Bond in like the last five minutes of the movie. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, you mean where again through the whole the bitch is dead. You're like, oh, that doesn't that seems very off for I understand he was in love. And the whole thing is you're watching James Bond make women indispensable or yeah dispense sorry, not indis but dispensable like he doesn't care about anybody he has no attachment oh he grains attachment and then is betrayed and then you know him being basically an angry teenager like i don't care fuck her i don't give a shit about her she was awful and then M's like you do realize that she bargained for your life asshole like you have to know that like you're you definitely know that because you're 007 but yeah i just they're definitely in terms of like a mystery movie and stuff like that, if you're going to add that element to it, I don't think there were enough breadcrumbs that at the end, all they do is like, I see that's an Armenian love knot. Someone very important must have given it to you. And then at the end, she's like, yes, her fiance was an Armenian, her boyfriend was an Armenian. Like, okay, just speak. I could have given my wife an Armenian love knot. That doesn't mean it came from an Armenian. <laughs> like I'm an Armenian. Like It's just like, that was not enough of a connection for that to make sense to me at all. Like people give each other an Irish love, the, the love ring all the time and they're not Irish. Like it doesn't, I don't think that's the connection the audience needed. You can tell that this movie script wise was written probably in, in a segmented nature, not only by the number of people who wrote it, because it feels like somebody wrote 
you know, touched up the first act, somebody touched up the second act, somebody touched up the third act. But it also feels like plot elements were introduced mm -hmm. well into filming because it's a testament to this movie that they're able to pull it off. And, and I'll touch on that later and we talk about the breakup. But if they didn't nail the casting of Bond and Vesper in this movie, the, the seams would be showing a lot more. They're able to cover mm -hmm. for that element. But yeah, the, the last third of this movie is kind of ridiculous in the amount of, of plot that's introduced and character motivations that are dropped from the sky. I mean, you say casting. I loved uh, what's this Mad? Um, what Mads uh, Mickelson as Lashif? I loved him. I love Jeffrey Wright as Felix because um, he comes up in later movies, which I'm glad that they continued to use him. But like, I mean, Judy Dench, re, re, you know, reprising her role as M. Like, I loved a lot of the casting in this movie. To your point, um, but yes, if if it hadn't been right, I, I think you would have seen it. Wouldn't have been nearly as enjoyable. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah even as i'm talking about you know the 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 prologue being the first beginning i'm like the whole idea and i alluded to it in my synopsis but <laughs> i don't understand the sheaf like no one would suspect it's like oh he wants to short a stock that everyone knows is gonna go up and then suddenly a, mis a plane mysteriously explodes like how could that not be a giant red flag to the international like, intelligence community? Like, it's a little weird that this happened, right? Even if it had been an accident, like, why would anybody bet that much against a sure thing? It's like, this that was the one thing, honestly, out of all my... I still can't understand how this made a lot of sense in this movie. Like, that that was how he was going to make this money, was by blowing up an experimental aircraft. Uh, but it does just crack me up. Because, that, again, that's a whole... That's almost an entire plot of a movie right there is James Bond figuring that out and foiling the shorting of that, you know, the sabotage of that plane. But no, that's just the prologue so that we can get into him having the high stakes poker tournament. Yeah, especially when you think about this movie came out in, you know, 2006. I mean, 9-11 is still fresh in people's minds. So it is kind of incredible that the first act of this movie is to foil a terrorist attack on a commercial airliner and that yeah that's mm -hmm. literally just setting the table for the poker game that comes later but uh yeah <laughs> and can we talk just did you enjoy how mathis basically spends the the whole poker game talking to the audience in case they don't know what <laughs> poker is yes <laughs> Now oh, he's, he's, oh, he's, yeah. he's taking advantage of his tell. <laughs> and Vesper's just looking at him like, I don't, I'm not asking you these questions. I, I know how to mm -hmm. play poker. Why are you talking to me like this? <laughs> uh, clever way to make sure the audience is engaged and understands, though, if you've never played poker. So I'll give them credit. But it is also humorous if you do know how to play poker. And he's there basically as, you know, the John Madden of the poker tournament. Now, if you see, here, if he plays a pair and it's a high, it's an ace, uh, and the other plays a pair of kings, the aces will win because they're higher cards. <laughs> it's my best John Madden, everybody. I'm sorry. Oh. It, was, it was a little more, I think, Southern lawyer, but I feel like this. A little more Colonel Sanders, I say, Foghell Leghorn here, uh, giving you a poker tournament uh, update. Um, but yeah, it is very humorous. Um, so, sir, I think I've I've taken the first two. Do you want to decide poker pace to the right, to the right, or the breakup? Where would you like to go next? Uh, 
I think we've kind of hit poker pace uh, if mm-hmm. you want to expound upon it. But again, it's it's weird how much data is dumped in the third act of the movie when you realize that Vesper has been playing Bond the whole time. Like mm-hmm. from the beginning, she is in on this. And I don't think the movie does a great job of really showing how. Um, so that's why it's yeah. weird to me in the middle of the movie, you have so much poker playing and so much commentary when you should be setting up Vesper as not necessarily the villain, but at least working against Bond. Yeah, a double agent. And even to that point, the whole line at the end, like, oh, oh I guess this exonerates Mathis. No, 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 Mathis might, get, like, you know, just because she's guilty doesn't mean he's innocent type thing. Like, they never, like, and it does irritate me a little bit. I'm like, so was Mathis bad? Was Vesper the one who who told the Chief's crew that James knew the, the tell for... For, which honestly what an obvious tell like i know i know again it's probably the same thing for the movie because it had the audience has to be able to see but i'm like for god's sake like if no inner like no professional poker players tell would be that fucking obvious oh if he touches his fucked up eye then uh, he's he's definitely bluffing <laughs> like it's, um but uh yeah you never find out who exactly it was who actually was working you know Lashif makes the comment, your friend Mathis is my friend Mathis. And then you find out, oh no, Vesper is like, so who actually, and I feel like that's important to find out who actually was, was Vesper's only double cross basically saying, okay, I'm going to give the money to the evil organization in, in payment for James's life. Or was she also from the beginning manipulating James and trying to make him lose the money? Because if that's the case, you know, why didn't she give the $5 million? There's, there's a lot of weird stuff where it's like, it's not like if you start really trying to look at it with a microscope, you're like, I don't quite know. Like, you know, we could create a thesis paper as to what we think and what we don't think. But as the the writer and the director, I feel like it's your job to kind of clear those up for us so that there isn't a question at the end of the movie. And, and I'm also confused if, if Vesper is doing this to save her boyfriend, why does... Why does she then choose to just let herself die in the elevator like that? Mm-hmm. That's the number one thing that I, I probably hated about this movie is that it, it deals in that trope of like, you know, I betrayed James Bond, so I can't go on living. I'm like, no, you you did all of this to save your boyfriend who is a hostage. And then you give up the money and just are like, you know what? I feel bad about mm-hmm. what I did. I'm just going to go die now. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't yeah. get that character decision from Vesper. Yeah, from Vesper, no, it is, and it's just lazy writing where it's like, this is how we have to do the character arc for, you know, how James Bond becomes even more disconnected from people is because of, you know, this betrayal from her, and is, is he ever able to love again after this, and it's like, eh, I mean, there's better ways of doing this than in this direction, and honestly, it's one of those where I would have rather have seen that in the second or third movie, where, like, Vesper's still around, and that's when he finds out, like, oh my god, you betrayed us, or she's arrested, and something like that, where it's like, there's a little bit more to the relationship than, oh, they fucked in a hospital, a very, very nice hospital, by the way, and then sailed a boat around the world for a little bit. And like all of a sudden, ultimate betrayal, I fell in love, we were going to live forever for the next month off of whatever money we were able to get out of the bank. But um, right, they, they fucked yeah. in a hospital because they had to be at a hospital because his testicles and penis were just beat into mashed potatoes and yet he's still able to fuck her. Okay. Well, that's because you know what he can do with his little <laughs> finger. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and even uh, a little bit more to expel on that. Like, I do think the pacing of this movie is there's at times it is definitely a little slow, and then you know they inject action into it. We've always said I th- I don't think this movie needs to be two and a half hours long, especially when we talk about the third act is just like really chopped up and thrown in. You're like, what? Where? When did the movie? Did the movie change? Did the like? Is this a mini series? Did the next episode start and I didn't realize? You're like, is the seek? Did the sequel just start going with Netflix? Like, I don't know what's going on here. Um, but yeah, the pacing is just a it's a little strange and it, it is very segmented, which is. Yeah, and, and that, yeah, that's exactly it. Like we're the Hollywood chop shop. It feels like this is a couple of different stories kind of welded onto one another, which, again, a lot of movies, that's a death sentence. But somehow this movie carries it off pretty well. Well, and it's interesting because if this hadn't been a James Bond where, you know, he's going to go up against Spectre or whatever many other of his rogues and villains and all that. It's almost where the Casino Royale could have just been broken into a trilogy where the first movie is him becoming a double O agent and realizing what's going on, foiling the airport or the the airplane um, attack. And that's where that movie ends is essentially like 007. He saved this. The next movie starts out where you find out who was behind the attack. He has to do the high stakes poker with all of that to figure out and defeat Le Chief. You find out who Lashif is working for, and then the third movie winds up being the betrayal from Vesper, and then him ultimately hunting down Mr. White. Like, that could have been easily the three movies, and you could have made an hour and a half to two hours out of each of those, rather than trying to mash them together the way they did. Yeah, it's kind of insane to think that you're going to technically see the birth of 007, and by the end of the same movie, he's like, I'm retiring. Like, that's just, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's weird pacing. Yeah. Uh, I will say for a movie that is about a high stakes poker game, they do a pretty good job of keeping it interesting. You know, they don't dwell too much on it. They enough to for you to understand what's going on at the table, what's at stake. And then, you know, splicing in the action between, you know, the guerrilla warlord, you know, the fight with them, the the being poisoned. I did think you know, when you start thinking about the timing of all of it, it's like, OK, so he left the table was able to get out to his car, do all the health stuff, and then get back to the, get redressed back to the table. And like, how many hands had passed in that period? I'm like, I've played poker. A hand doesn't last that long, especially when you get down to like four players. So I'm like, how long did they let him just sit out? Yeah, I couldn't quite tell the timeline. Was this poker game occurring over at least two nights? Like. Do they retire and, and go to bed for the evening and pick it up later that night? Because, yeah, the the amount of action between hands is is quite ridiculous in this movie. <laughs> I And I can see why, because I they would be it would be risky to spend the the first the middle act of an entire James Bond movie with no action, just poker and dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, if you again, if you actually analyze what is happening, it's basically like. You know, you're hosting a poker game at your house and your friend keeps excusing himself to go outside. What you don't know is he's murdered three people and stashed a body (laughs) in the trunk and then is returning like he's just made a beer run. Yeah, even with those things, I look at him like, yeah, you're not gaining money because you're not playing, but you're also not losing money at the same rate as everybody else. So it's like at a certain point, and I don't know if that's what it is. It's like just whenever the blind gets to him, someone takes the money out and throws it in and like he just essentially... He loses that money, and then when 
you know, he comes back, he can actually play his hand. But yeah, it, that is another one of those little things where I'm like, it just it seems so weird how long he's able to leave the table. But wow, it seems $10 like no dollars is on the line. This is not <laughs> yeah. like, hey, $20 buy-in. This is yep. $10 million. Um, so we are kind of going in somewhat of a chronological order here. So we'll just go ahead and stick with to the right, to the right. I will say... With the exception of maybe some Game of Thrones episodes, um, this is the most uncomfortable torture scene I think I have ever seen in a in a movie or series. Like, and I don't know if it is because I am a man and I know what it feels like to get your your testicles smashed. But when Lashif talks about he doesn't understand all these elaborate tortures, when you know it, you could this very simple method is all it takes. I'm like, he's not wrong because I could feel my testicles being smashed every time he hit James Bond, and I'm like, oh god, please stop! Like this doesn't, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> Which I also love the second layer of they're basically having Lashif kind of shit on previous bond films like we've talked about mm -hmm. how ridiculous bond got by the end of brosden and historically has been at times under like roger moore he's literally talking to the audience like isn't it dumb all the shit that we did with pierce brosden here's just <laughs> some good old-fashioned just cut the the bottom out of a chair and we're gonna smash some testicles so <laughs> and again we talked about it before we got on air i can't believe this movie is pg-13 like that that is in a PG-13 film. Like I can yeah. I can hear the sound of that rope hitting. Yeah, it it is so gruesome. Like it is I assume that they that pushed the boundaries of what it is to be a PG-13 cuz yeah, all of the being shot in the head and the the being killed like none of that amounts to watching Lashif just just beat the shit out of James Bond's testicles. And it's just like, oh boy, oh boy, is it uncomfortable. Like, and it is just, it is such a, a bit when he goes up and, and maybe <laughs> having seen it before, when he puts that, that rope knot over his shoulder and I'm just like, oh my God, I know what's coming. And I don't, <laughs> I don't want to watch this. I know what is about to happen. Um, yeah, just good Lord. Good it, lord, uncomfortable. And the the double benefit of that, not only is it brutal, you know, it's it's memorable because it's so brutal, but it also allows a very badass moment from James Bond because he's still mm. not going to tell and he still has that epic line of like, you're you're going to die scratching my balls. Like, yeah, the, the bravado, the machismo to be able to say that. When that is what is happening to you, again, it it just shows you what a badass James Bond is. Mm -hmm. Could not agree more. Uh, so that will be a short segment. It just it has to be brought up. Just how brutal, how brutal that torture scene is. Because you know you could have had people being flayed or whatever. I don't know what it is. There's just something about how just simple and just archaic that torture was. We were just like how effective that scene none of just the the atmosphere of the scene the rusted out tanker and all that like it is just it is a fantastic scene in the lighting and it's just yeah ooh, 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 makes me uncomfortable just talking about it so i think that brings us to the last uh point of inspection i think so we didn't put it in the in the intro here i have a feeling this is going to be another trilogy where we have a special sixth uh, because just by virtue of why we made this the tune-up, we we it's because all of the 
the movies in this trilogy had a song made for the movie. So I'm sure we'll talk about Chris Carnell and the the opening, uh, the opening credits. But uh, let's go ahead and talk about the breakup. Yeah, I um, I just wanted to bring it up because the breakup is a movie that we reviewed very early in the history of the Hollywood Chop Shop, and we talked about at the time like how the movie did a good job of conveying how painful it was to see the two main characters that, you know, we've grown to love kind of fall apart and, and kind of betray each other, do wrong by each other. This Mm. movie, while being a bond movie, the, it could, it could easily work as a rom-com. Like the -hmm. whole introduction between Vesper and bond, uh, the train scene, the, the, the Stephanie broad chest, joke like all of that <laughs> stuff like has all of the the good elements of like a meet cute and like a, a, a growing romance so the fact that that movie pulls that off like kind of being the center you know around all these action scenes parkour and you know testicle smashing i just thought that's what was lacking in a lot of the bond movies to this point uh, and even after, I don't, I don't think that Daniel Craig, I guess part of it is you're, you're introducing Bond and why he's got such a cold heart because this is such a betrayal. Mm. But I just thought the chemistry between Daniel Craig and Eva Green in this movie was just phenomenal. Like better than than this movie had any right to have. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's almost a travesty because I know Quantum of Solace, again, being able, the movie has already come out, so we know. A lot of that is about James Bond basically trying to clear her name and find out what ex- how involved she was if it really was, like if she was involved with the organization or if it really was she basically was blackmailed. But what it would have been way more interesting had she been arrested for stealing the money. And then there was a scene or several scenes in Quantum of Solace where he actually has to visit her in prison to get more information from her and basically determine if she's telling the truth. Was she really just trying to protect him? And that would have been, I think, more compelling for the James Bond character, you know, him being vulnerable and having to continue to be vulnerable in order to find out was this person that he fell in love with actually manipulating him or what did he have the best interest? But we didn't get that because, you know, she, you know, she screams and drowns, even though James Bond screams about 17 times and has, I I assume he has gills with the fact that he never has to come up for air. But, um, again, just very strange that that ultimately we decided to kill her off in the first movie when there was so much chemistry there and it seems like there was so much more potential for what you could have done with those two characters going forward in a series unless you didn't think that you were going to do an overarching story and you were just going to do like James Bond of old where every movie is its own contained story as opposed to actually having a continuation which is funny because if you I know you kind of gave up on the Daniel Craig franchise. I've not seen the most recent one, No Time to Die, but um, they end up trying to make it much more of a, you know. Less episodic in nature. They So mm-hmm. it, it's weird. It's it's almost like to go back to our previous trilogy. You know, it's kind of like killing off Darth Maul in the first movie. There's so much more content there. Uh, that they kind of just leave on the cutting room floor by killing her. It, it almost feels like they kind of blew their load storytelling wise on mm-hmm. this first movie when there was so much more ground to cover, <laughs> which is a shame well, because, again, it, it, yeah. it's such a good performance by both. And it's one of those, maybe it's one of those 
they didn't know how people were going to respond to the the reintroduction of James Bond in a new tonal direction. So it's like, well, if people hate this, we're going to have to reboot it again, you know, start all over as opposed to people really enjoyed it. And now it's like, oh, well, shit, you know, and maybe they didn't think that at all. It just I think it would have made a more compelling for a story had she not decided to kill herself or James. Even if she tried to, James was still able to save her. And by virtue of that, you know, she can wind up coming back in a, in a later story where he has to come back and talk with her about her leads and stuff like as opposed to, oh, she just gave him an email on her phone so that he could hunt down Mr. White. Yeah, I think the most difficult thing with James Bond as a character is making him a three-dimensional character and you kind of waste, you know, Vesper in just one movie. When, like you said, you could have her play a role, even if it's a background role, in later movies, so. Mm-hmm. All righty, well, let's go ahead and talk real quick. Um, I know I didn't bring it up. Um, you Know My Name, I believe is the name of the song, by Chris Cornell, so... The whole point of this trilogy, the the tune-up, emphasis on the word tune, as we said, was that uh, all three of the movies in the trilogy, well, had a song was made specifically for this movie. Uh, James Bond felt like a... Which one, we didn't know, but James Bond felt like a natural choice just because I believe just about every James Bond movie, the opening sequence has had a song specifically made. I think this is the only one with a male singer. Am I wrong in, in that? Uh... Off the top of my head, no, I have to agree with you. Yeah, I, I don't think that there's any others that have a male singer, but Chris Cornell of Soundgarden and, um, oh shit, Audio Slave fame, um, God rest his soul. Hopefully that I'm not ruining your time capsule because you do love to take it to a morbid place every time <laughs> um, when, you, when you have the opportunity. Uh, but he actually wrote and composed the the opening for for this song which i think it's it's a good song it's a good james bond song i mean i'm sure in the wrap up we'll talk about what was our favorite of the three um i thought the the opening credits are very 2006 it feels like people like as after effects and some of those motion graphics programs are starting to get a little bit more powerful it felt very much like weird filters and stuff like that were that were used um but at the end of the day, I don't know if you have any. I, I, I know I brought the co- the segment. And I don't have a lot to talk about. Do you have any thoughts on? I just thought we had to at least mention it since that was the whole point of this trilogy. Uh, decent song, good. I mean, again, a fun fact. I do believe it's the only male singer for a James Bond opening. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed. The, I thought it was clever that they just called it. You know my name, kind of like hey the the bond franchise is big enough we don't have to tell you who it is you know my name so i thought that was clever yeah so a little bit off of because i think james bond has one of the most iconic like theme songs in cinema history um probably definitely top 10 100 percent top 20 but did i i was reading some of the facts about this apparently the orchestra that they created for this it never uses the full Bond theme until the very end, and that's to illustrate that he's still kind of green and adapting. So he doesn't actually get his James Bond theme until the very end of the movie with the and all that. So I thought that was cool and clever. I, I love when people look at little details like that, um, especially when you have like you know you have to use the James Bond theme, but to actually strategically use it that way, I think is, is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's one of those things that you don't necessarily notice while watching the movie. But once you point it out in retrospect, yeah, absolutely. 
because when so. when after he shoots Mr. White and that that theme hits, like I I did I did get excited. Hmm. So with that, I believe we have we have wrapped up our five ish point inspection, <laughs> and we uh we'll now move into a couple other segments. So do you want? Do you prefer to do blue book or tagline for tag and title first? Uh, let's do blue book. Let's do blue book. All right, I like it. Uh, get, get, keep it keep it with the uh, tradition, right? So, Travis, the sticker price of this here film was one hundred and fifty million dollars. That's what it estimated cost to make this this movie. What do you think it grossed U.S. and Canada? Uh. I'll say $310 million. $167 million. Damn. U.S. and Canada. Yeah. I was surprised by that number as well. I was like, I would have... I don't know if it's the two and a half hour mark or what, but I would have thought that this movie would have been better received. Uh, So, I don't know if it also is James Bond fatigue... You know, yeah, but I mean, this is a reboot. I, I'm, I'm gonna reserve judgment until you tell me the worldwide gross because I feel like Bond is very much a worldwide property. So, well, I'm not gonna tell you shit. You're gonna have to guess. All right, Travis, I'm not gonna make it easy for you. I'm gonna make you work for it. So again, we're gonna include the U.S. and Canada gross, or yes, okay, all right. So this gross is worldwide box office this is worldwide. everything. Okay. All in. Chips are all in for this one, all right? Ah, you scratched your eye, Brett. I think you're telling me that this made $525 million. Not quite. $616 million. Oh, okay. <laughs> I bluffed you there. I bluffed you. Did you see that? Damn it, <laughs> Vesper. Where are you, Vesper? That, that, that bitch is dead. Uh, so yes this was widely successful worldwide <laughs> good good and, and well just- yeah yeah I, I, I get it. as much as you know it's fun to to kind of to to shit on movies a little bit but i do very much enjoy this movie uh, we talked about the the character interaction i think the action is very well done i i prefer the grounded action kind of from the born the born movies and stuff like that. i thought this was a fantastic reboot of where james bond was it got me back into james bond because i always thought james bond was kind of a hokey i mean by the end it felt like james bond was a caricature of himself like he was almost spoofing james bond and spy movies by the end of it with just how ridiculous you know oh the villain owns the newspaper company so he knows the news like he controlled like okay like this is is this a villain or like i feel like we need something i don't need him shooting lasers from the moon but also maybe a little bit more than a newspaper tycoon like where's the happy median between villains here um but <laughs> yes so uh yeah let's let's go ahead and jump into one of my favorites tag and title So not a lot of additional titles uh, for this one. For the most part, it was on a lot of foreign markets. They would put 007 in front of it. I think just to make sure that people understood that this was in the 
ooh, excuse me, the James Bond realm of films. Um, because I'm not sure if you know this or not, but this is actually the second film to be called Casino Royale and to have James Bond in it. So there was a the one of the very first first spy spoof films was actually Casino Royale, but um, so. Yeah, not a lot with the additional titles, but let's go ahead and get into some taglines. So I'm going to give you one of the many, many taglines that this movie had. I'm going to also give you a tagline for a movie I found adjacent, and then I'm going to give you a tagline that I created myself. And Travis, what I need you to do for me is tell me which of these taglines is an official tagline for 2006's Casino R.I.L. Are you ready, sir? Hit me. Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond. MI6 goes all in and always bet on Bond. Um, MI6 goes all in. I'm going to say you made that up. Final um, answer? Final answer. Okay. See, here's here's the trouble I'm having with always bet on Bond reminds me of the line from the Wesley Snipes movie, I believe, Passenger 57, which his last name is Black. And he says, always bet on black. But I'm going to say that that's an official tagline and they kind of spoofed that. Okay. And I'm going to say the first one, the Casino Royale that you since you literally mentioned it, I'm going to assume that's the tagline for the 1967 or whatever year that original was made. It's very weird that you know the exact year that that movie came out, Travis. Hmm. Hmm. Are you getting in my head? Do I have a tell when it comes to tag and title? Brett, your eyes bleeding. Right. <laughs> it's nothing sinister, all right? It's just a <laughs> bleeding eye duct. Until, of course, I'm stressed out because I just lost all of my millions of dollars and then my eyes going to bleed. Um, so, Travis, you got this 100% correct. And, and you got the bonus because you guessed the movie for the adjacent tagline. So, yes, Always Bet on Bond was an official tagline for this movie. I'll get into some of the others in a minute. Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond is the tagline for the 1967 Casino Royale starring Peter Sellers as James Bond and Orson Welles as Le Chiffre. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the premise of that one is, I guess, they they have a high-stakes game of Baccarat, and in order to throw everybody else, everybody who shows up, every secret agent is named James Bond, with the exception of the real James Bond, who is named something else. So that's why the tagline is... Casino Royale is too it, much for what, one James Bond. Was it Bond. Arlington Beach? Which is what Bond's it, code name is in this one? Uh, it might have been. Um, I would have to look that up. Let's see. I'll take a quick pause here. I'll cut this out. Uh, uh, Arlington Beach does not pull anything No. Up. Yeah, well. It was not. It was... Peter Sellers' name was Evelyn Trimble. Okay. So, yes, and he was the real James Bond. So, uh, 
now I would love to go ahead and tell you some of the other taglines for this movie because this is one of the the biggest ranges of like oh decent tagline to what? <laughs> so uh, you had the new Bond living for love, dying for thrills was a tagline for this. A whisper of love, a whisper of hate. What? The pawn, the con, the bond. Always bet on bond. And then my personal favorite, I would have loved to have seen this on a poster, because with no context, it makes no sense. The bitch is dead. What? Yeah. It's apparently a tagline for this movie. I'm like, where and when would that have been used? Yeah, it's usually a bad idea to have a tagline that won't make any sense, even when you're watching the movie until like the last 10 minutes. That's it's mm-hmm. probably a, that's bad business. So um, and then, of course, to round it out, MI6 goes all in was from yours truly. So. Alrighty, righty. Uh, do you have a time capsule for us this week? Uh, I do. And I'm glad it, it, it didn't come up organically, so I'm happy about that. It's going to be a brief one because I think we're probably running long. But the director of this movie is Martin Campbell, uh, who also directed GoldenEye. So he's got quite the touch for introducing a new Bond because he did the first Brosnan and he did the first Craig. And bonus, he kind of introduced another famous character to the, or reintroduced another famous character to the cinema screen after Goldeneye, which he did The Mask of Zorro. Oh, I mean, I, I love that movie. It's funny. Um, Brosnan was supposed to be in Casino Royale. I heard that. I heard that um, basically his his cost was too high. Mm-hmm. Which I think so. Why they didn't bring him back. Also, uh, um, Edge of Darkness, another fantastic movie of his, <laughs> has another one of those oh shit scenes for me that like, so I'm one of those people that's always waiting for something terrible to happen in the background of a movie, and it is because of Edge of Darkness. Edge of Darkness has me on the edge of my seat almost all the time because of that, that fucking movie. You know what scene I'm talking about when uh, the, the chick gets hit? Not off the top of my head, no. So there's a moment where I think he's talking to like, I think it's one of his daughter's friends or something like that, possibly an informant or something like that. And she gets out of the car and is like standing there and talks to him. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a vehicle just comes and fucking smashes her, like runs her over. And you're just like, what the fuck just happened? And like for ever since I've seen that movie, that was 2010. I'm always just waiting for something to happen in a movie like, oh, there this there's tension. I'm like, something weird is going to happen here. But uh, Edge of Darkness, good. Green Lantern, uh, dog shit. So <laughs> yeah, he's got a very uh, uneven, weird mm-hmm. career. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what it takes for him to make a great movie, but he's he's got some really good stuff in here, and then he's got some stuff that I would never want to have to review on this show. Yeah, shout out to 1994's No Escape, starring Ray Liotta and Ernie Hudson. Uh, five years into this podcast, we'll definitely do that. <laughs> uh, very cool, though. No, good, good time capsule. So with that, I think it only leaves one thing left for us to do, Mr. Santana. 
And that's to do a little choppy chop. Or you want to do some choppy chop? Chop chop, baby. All right, so this week I got Sci-Fi, which first time Sci-Fi is, is coming out, because uh, um, we re- we introduced it in a Sci-Fi trilogy, and then immediately did a Sci-Fi trilogy after that. So uh, I got Sci-Fi, and then I think you got miniseries. Ah, was it miniseries? Miniseries was it? So I, I will let you decide where we start this. Well, uh, off air, I think we we had a very brief discussion. And, and I think it's it's proof positive that we both really enjoyed Casino Royale. So that probably spoils our our wrap up at the end of this podcast. But um, I enjoyed the movie so much. I got many series. There wasn't much that I really wanted to change. I, I added a, a few flourishes, but mostly I'm just splitting up the movie into six parts. Mm-hmm. And I think you kind of had a similar phenomenon with your sci fi. Uh, yeah, I, I might <laughs> I, I might have. They're laser pistols. So, is that, is yeah. That, that's a big change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big pistol. Big, big laser pistol guy here. Um. So, yeah, either one of us can go first. I, mine's going to be pretty brief. As is mine. So I will once again defer to you. God damn it. All right. I'll fucking go, Brett. <laughs> OK, thank you. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll just fly through this thing. I did go ahead and name the episodes. Uh didn't put a lot of thought into them, but uh, this is going to be a six-part miniseries uh, as seen on HBO. Uh, episode one, double O. Uh, we're going to use the longer runtime to expand on the idea that MI6 has double agents, leaks, etc. Because the movie, that, that first opening scene in black and white, I don't think it, it's clearly expressed that he is killing... Uh, a high-ranking member of MI6 who is selling information. Mm. I don't even know if it's technically a member of MI6 or just the, like, department or the head of the Department of Defense or... I, I don't know. Yeah, he's... He's someone high up who's selling of MI6. Secrets. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I only know that because I, I looked at the plot synopsis to, mm. to see. But... Um, so we're going to expand on that a little bit more. Um, basically, instead of Bond just killing the guy... The guy's going to kind of casually mention the fact that even if Bond kills him, there's there's more going on in MI6 than he realizes. Um, and the rest of episode one, I wanted to flesh out Lashif a little bit more because Lashif seems mad reckless to me. Like maybe uh, it, if you've seen the movie Heat, Brett, uh, Val Kilmer's character is like a gambling addict. He's constantly mm-hmm. losing money. It feels like Lashif is kind of in that vein. Like he's always you know, trying to short stocks and he's basically gambling with money that he doesn't have. It's, it's a Ugandan warlord. I mean, like you said, that's the definition of reckless. So just kind of make him seem more reckless, more unhinged. Maybe he's a cocaine addict. Um, but the episode's going to end with Lashif meeting in Uganda and getting the, the money and calling his stockbroker credits roll. Episode two, the Madagascar job. Uh, again, it's going to be Bond's first mission as a double O, uh, Bond's partner, uh, like in the movie, he's going to blow their cover with, you know, touching his earpiece. Uh, my only change is that the terrorist Malacca is going to have a few associates in the crowd. 
and uh, Carter's going to get shot uh, once he blows his cover. Uh, Bond's going to kill the guy who shot him and stop to render aid. Uh, he basically tells Carter, hey, you know, put pressure on the wound. Uh, I've called in for your extraction. Um, but a third henchman is going to get the drop on Bond amidst the chaos and is about to kill Bond when a sniper bullet hits the henchman in the forehead, killing him instantly. Bond's going to scramble to his feet, scanning the rooftops, and he only catches a glimpse of a person running away on the rooftop. And then, of course, we're going to have the parkour chase. Episode three, the life expectancy, the life expectancy, <clears throat> the life expectancy mm-hmm. of a double O. Uh, again, M's going to be furious with Bond's lack of uh, finesse. Uh, Bond's going to claim that he wrote the book on finesse. <laughs> A little Marky Mark. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's going to say, hey, maybe I made a mistake by promoting you. He's going to, you know, call out that, uh, you know, the life expectancy of a double O is very brief. So your mistake will be short lived. M cryptically responds, you know, some more than others. Uh, she suspends Bond. Bond's going to break into her laptop, blah, blah, blah. We're going to have the ship in Miami. He, he ruins Lashif's plot. And we'll cut to Lashif finding out that his plot went awry. Uh, and he's going to calmly state that he understands. And he's going to hang up the phone. And after he hangs up the phone, he's going to throw it across the room in a fit of rage. And he's going to open a box on his desk. And he's going to do a bunch of cocaine as credits roll. <laughs> so, again, I want to lean into Lashif as a loose cannon. Okay. Uh, episode four, Poker Face. Uh, this is going to be the episode where Bond meets Vesper. We'll download the plot of the poker game, just like in the movie. Uh, the fight with the uh, African warlord will go down in the in the stairwell. Uh, Vesper, again, is going to prevent the, the, the warlord from getting Bond's gun. So she's going to help there. My only change is when Bond is poisoned... He's again going to fail to save himself, but this time it's not Vesper who saves him. But we'll see from Bond's point of view as he comes to in the car seat that somebody has saved him. His vision will be blurry and he sees a silhouette of a person walking away and getting into a car. Bond tries to call out, but is still too weak to make a sound. Bond's going to go to the poker, go back to the poker game when Vesper gets kidnapped. The episode's going to end with uh, Bond flipping the Aston Martin. Which, again, if Vesper is in on it, why do they tie her up and put her in the middle of the road? What's up with that? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I guess she's not in on it until the very end. I, yeah, again, that, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for that one. You're going to let me sleep on it, and then I'll <laughs> call you in the morning and, and tell you why that was the case. We'll save it for the wrap-up. But it, it feels yeah. like a lot of this stuff was kind of written on the fly and doesn't yeah doesn't she, necessarily fit. she's been in on it from the whole time from the tanker like oh well why did you say from the whole time then it just seems like you should have just started from the tanker right right the tanker uh so episode five called your balls and your word which is uh a scarface <laughs> reference i don't know if you know it but yeah you mm-hmm. probably know what's going to happen in this episode brett uh, Lashif's going to do a lot of cocaine. And there's going to be some ball smashing. <laughs> uh, episode's going to open with Bond strapped to the chair, being tortured by Lashif. Uh, an unhinged Lashif beats and curses Bond for messing up his plans. Uh, eventually, like in the movie, Lashif's going to be interrupted by gunshots. And a shadowy figure enters the room. Again, Lashif Ray pleads with the figure. 
and uh, you know he'll get the money back. And again, just like in the movie, money isn't as important to our organization as knowing who to trust. And the mystery figure will shoot, kill the chief in the you know same manner as he does in the movie. Um, basically, the end of episode five is just everything about Vesper betraying Bond and her uh, dying in the elevator. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it's going to end with the mysterious figure taking the suitcase away. And uh, episode six, the finale, you know my name. Uh, again, Bond's going to go to uh, Lake Como. Uh, a silver Aston Martin DB5 will be uh, pulling into the Lake Como. Uh, Very specific. Very specific. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, again, the mysterious figure is going to get a phone call. Uh, it's Bond saying that they need to talk. The mysterious figure agrees, but instead of shooting him in the leg, we're going to cut to Bond with the sniper rifle and two henchmen pull a gun on him. They basically, the, the shadowy figure has caught Bond and they lead him by gunpoint into the villa and they, they lead him into an office where the mysterious figure is sitting at a desk with his back to Bond Welcome to my home, Mr. Bond. Like you said, we have a lot to talk about. And th- with this, the mysterious figure spins around in his chair, Brett, and I bet you can probably guess who's sitting in that chair. Is it Felix? It's Pierce fucking Brosnan. Roll credits. What? There's too many Bonds. It's too many. Casino Royales, if there's too many Bonds. Too many Bonds, baby. I wonder if they ever thought about doing that for this reboot is bringing back, Mm. you know, Connery or of course, it probably wouldn't be Brosnan logistically because he couldn't agree to terms. But that's what I thought this movie was missing. Go ahead and, and, and have the final villain reveal be a former Bond, like an actor who played Bond and just leave on that cliffhanger. No, that would have been pretty cool. I like it. Pierce Brosnan. Mm. So yeah, pretty much the same movie. I just instead of Mister White, it's Pierce Brosnan. And then you just you pan back, and one of the two goons is Sean Bean. <laughs> oh, <laughs> England, James. Sean Bean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like it. I dig it. So, um, well, we'll see if you can figure out what I did for my chop shop, Travis. I got sci-fi, so I'll just you know. I'll just jump right into it. What do you think? Yeah? Let's do it. So we open with James Bond, a member of MI7, MI7, uh, a galactic space agency. Uh, Lashif is funding terrorism or or freedom fighters and manipulating galactic stock markets. You know, we say freedom fighters because maybe they're colonists on other planets, right? So they're a freedom fighter. They don't want to be part of the Galactic Federation. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit. But James Bond is on a colony on Mars where he chases down a suspect and blows up a Federation building. Um, after that, he winds up getting a lead uh, in, uh, about a, a plot to destroy a space freighter uh, designed to build, take basically colony or colonizers uh, to the farthest humanity's ever gone. Maybe like, you know, Pluto or something like that. It's, just, it's this giant space freighter. And uh, ultimately... This lead that he gets um, from the bomber and from, you know, vacationing on maybe Venus or something like that. It winds up wait, uh, wait, bringing wait, wait. him. 
can we change it to Uranus? I don't know if they've gone to Uranus yet, oh. but, but trust me, when we get to Uranus, I definitely think James Bond is going to make a quick trip there. Um, but, uh, yeah, he stops the sabotage of this new freighter, um, which ultimately winds up being that, you know, uh, the way Lashif has been making his money is, is shorting the stocks on the, you know, these galactic star cruisers and the these, you know, uh, space traveling vessels, right? So... In order to recoup the lost shorts, Lashif sets up a high stake game, high stakes game of Jupiter No Limit Hold'em. <laughs> um, so, uh, it's, you know, uh, fancy, fancy uh, future space poker. Um, so Bond uh, is set up with MI67, MI7, an MI7 accountant, and um, he enters into the tournament with the hope of beating Lashif uh, and forcing him to flip on the tor- terrorist organization slash freedom fighters uh, that he's been helping fund, right? So I, I actually explicitly mentioned that in mine. Um, so at the poker tournament, uh, Bond is met with a who's who of galactic crime lords uh, and a fellow law enforcement official from Earth who he finds out, uh, uh, Mr. Felix, you know. Uh, he, uh, during a break, Bond is going to wind up trying to track down Lashif to get more information on him, uh, where he's going to find Lashif being assaulted by a Venus warlord. Uh, Bond inadvertently gets into an altercation with the warlord and his guard, killing them both accidentally and having to hide the bodies. Uh, back at the poker tournament, Bond's ego gets the best of him, and he winds up losing uh, by going all in, thinking that he knows Lashif's tell. Little does he know that Lashif has been tipped off that Bond knows his tell, and uh, Lashif outwits him. Bond is furious and attempts to buy back in, but uh, he has to wind up depending on his new Earth ally uh, to buy him back in because the MI7 Federation uh, won't give him the money. The accountant won't give him the money that he needs. So... Uh, being seen as a threat, Bond winds up being poisoned while playing by Lashif um, with a, a, the venom of a Martian dune worm um, and has to retreat to his spaceship and enter his stasis pod where he winds up being healed. Uh, Bond then returns to the poker game. Well, he's got a spaceship because it's sci-fi. Well, no, I, I thought right? it was a Bacta tank. Oh, well, that's you're right. It would be, it would be some form of Bacta tank. Um, so Bond returns to the poker game and defeats the Sheaf, only to be captured when trying to save the, uh, yeah, um, only to be, yeah, captured when he's trying to save the accountant after she's been kidnapped, right? Bond is tortured in a space scrapyard before being saved by a mysterious stranger, uh, who seems to know the Sheaf. The stranger kills the Sheaf, but leaves Bond and the accountant alive for some reason. Uh, after recovering from his wounds, James and the accountant start a relationship, and Bond decides to retire from MI7. Um, while selling the Cosmos, they stop at a space station where Bond learns that the accountant has actually double-crossed him and never sent the money back to MI7, and um, that's when he has to confront her. He pursues her, um, and though she's giving the poker winnings too, only to see uh, her evict are basically jettison herself into space through an airlock to save James. Uh, James finds a message from the accountant at the end, which uh, gives him all the information he needs to pursue Mr. White, the mysterious stranger who saved him in the shipyard. The movie ends with James uh, basically commandeering Mr. White's spaceship um, and boarding it. Um, yeah. 
So I, you know, it's, I took a lot of liberties with the movie um, to turn it into a sci-fi film. I definitely didn't just put Casino Royale in space. That's not a thing I did because that would have been lazy. Um, Here's the thing. Uh, yeah. Some people might accuse you of that, but to them I would say hmm. it's MI7. Just yeah. right there, it's a, it's a radical departure from what we Clearly saw. Clearly different. Yeah. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. If you thought six mm-hmm. was good, what about seven? I mean, I feel like it's the future, right? It's the future of MI6. They're in space. They have to up their numbers. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I won't do this every week. I just thought it would be funny for the first sci-fi one, and this would fit very well into just, hey, why don't we just throw in space? Because that seems to be what we call sci-fi these days. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's a spaceship. Well, there's not actually any sci-fi in it, but yeah, but it's in space, so it's sci-fi. Um, but yes. Uh, that was my sci-fi version of Casino Royale. And, and again, I think I brought it up earlier in the podcast. It's it's honestly, usually when this kind of stuff happens, when we don't go super outlandish and, and off the reservation with our chop shop, it's usually a sign of quality for the movie. And mm-hmm. I think that's what happened here. Yeah. The And the only other thing I'll bring up that's weird about the movie that I think is worth bringing up is the shower scene where he sucks the blood off her fingers and i'm like i'm not quite sure what that was supposed to be uh where you like lick i don't again i am just like that was is that how that was written (laughs) or or is that a daniel craig thing like it just seems weird to me that that's like no no no. see she's gonna say there's blood on her hands she can't get off and it's like you're consuming the blood off of her hands or something it's like that's just it was just weird watching him her suck her fingers while she's emotionally scarred like it was did that help her i don't know yeah it's oh god that's such a weird touch because it's such a powerful scene outside Mm -hmm. of that and and you you mentioned you know was that a daniel craig note apparently daniel craig's input was like no i we should both be fully clothed in the shower let's not make this any sort of we don't want to sexual yeah have anybody construe Mm -hmm. it as erotic but then like you said you kind of just waste all of that gravitas because i'm just like wait he's sucking her fingers well it was another weird thing where i'm just thinking about shots that don't need like the director chooses that when he's like oh are you cold and he chooses to warm up the water he follows his hand up to show him move the faucet and then comes right back down on him like you didn't have to move the camera like you could he, if he just put his hand up the entire audience would have assumed he was warming up the water like it's so weird that you chose to follow his hand like unless he did something else that the audience needed to see it's just a very weird way to reframe that shot and have it go up and follow his hand yeah, they, again, the sentiment of the scene is great. The, the, the details, though, that's where the devil is, as they say. And mm-hmm. they, they don't quite nail the detail. Yeah. Why did he suck his... Well, the next time Caitlin gets upset, I'm just going to see if I can suck her fingers and if it fix things. So I'll report back to you if, you know, she gets a little distraught about something and let you know how that, that goes. Oh... I feel like it's a, a good way to get your mind off of whatever is distracting you. Like, if she'd just been like, why did you suck my fingers? Like, well, because now you're not thinking about how you were involved in the murder of those two men. <laughs> hmm? Yeah, you're, you're not see? thinking about me strangling a man to death at the bottom of the stairwell. You're thinking yeah. about me filleting your fucking fingers. <laughs> 
Uh, so we'll go ahead and, and, you know, wrap the whole damn thing up. So final thoughts. Uh, obviously, I still very much love this movie. I do think it's a little long. I wish they they trim it up or they hate cut it up a little bit differently. But I would gladly watch this movie again. I think it's a fantastic installment in the James Bond. I think it's a great restart of the James Bond franchise. Uh, and I, I will continue going back to it. I, I do think it is. It's very well shot. Uh, there are a couple weird angles, and like I said, the whole, f- you know, following the hand or the finger-sucking thing, we're just like, I'm not quite sure about that, but holistically, the the film definitely checks out and is, is very good. Yeah, 100% agree. Prior to this rewatch, I would have named Skyfall as my favorite Bond movie. I I think Casino Royale might, might have it beat just because Bond feels a little bit more like a a real 3d lived in character. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really wish they had taken one more pass at the script to figure out the, the Vesper betrayal and the, the mechanics of that. Cause again, it kind of feels like they were rewriting stuff on the day of shooting. And that, that w- it's the weirdest third act I can remember in a good movie. Um, mm-hmm. but despite that, it overcomes it. Yeah. Neck and Neck as my favorite Bond movie. Very high recommend. I, I would recommend it to just about anybody. Um, yeah. And yeah, very much. Uh, again, it, it was trying to go for the, the Jason Bourne vibes. And, and I think it did a good job. And, and it kind of mm-hmm. nailed that. So yeah, uh, high, high recommend for Casino Royale. Yeah, the, the action scenes are fantastic. The, the physicality of, of Daniel Craig, very well done. So yeah, again, at the... Even the the knife fight in the the museum in Miami, I thought was really well done, especially with the little nod of like, where like James Bond, he kind of looks up and then he distracts the guy and is able to overpower him. Like it's those, those little details. It's like, it's not just at a certain point, it's not just James Bond being a blunt instrument. It's like, Oh, there is some cleverness to him in order to wind up winning the fight. So uh, yeah, not to, to continue droning on about it, but yeah, I definitely, definitely think it's, it is worth a watch. Yeah, the the only negative I really have is is a more meta one. Like they really set the the chessboard pretty well with this first movie. I, I don't think the the Daniel Craig Bond series lived up to the hype of this one. I think Skyfall was great, but after that they kind of petered out. So, um, but if you kind of remove that independent knowledge, just view Casino Royale as its own thing. Excellent Bond movie. Yep. So. With that, uh, housekeeping, I think next week we're going to wind up doing Footloose will be the next movie. So we're going to take it back to... And if I'm completely honest, I've seen... I've probably seen all of Footloose in pieces. I don't know if I've ever seen the movie all the way through. So this will be my first, like, full sit-down viewing of Footloose. But Kevin Bacon, man. You gotta you gotta love Kevin Bacon. K-Bakes. So with that, we hope we see you next week for some Footloose. Travis, any final words? I mean, this podcast has been a bitch and the bitch is dead. I'll be honest, when you started, I was like, I thought he was going to go the bitch is dead, but you did. You bluffed me again. You bluffed me, you son of a bitch. No, it's it's Lashif, right? 
I was I'm gonna say Le Chiffre throughout the whole movie, even though I know that's Do wrong. Do they put Ray? It, it is. I thought it was Le Chiffre. It, it's definitely Le Chiffre, but I'm okay. Always I'm just making sure Le as Chiffre. I'm. I'm okay. Okay. 